Two and a Half Admins, episode 150. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again for the 150th time. Well done. We made it. Sweet. Mm -hmm. Before we get started then, a plug for Practical ZFS, or is it Practical ZFS? What are you calling this one, Jim? It is however you would phonetically prefer it to be. (laughs) Practical ZFS is a new discourse server that I stood up for the uh, RZFS community or ZFS if you prefer, from Reddit. Because uh, as we all know by this point, you know, Reddit had its blackout protests as a result of CEO Steve Huffman. We don't need to get into all that. We've covered it on an earlier episode. The dude's an enormous jackass, and he never did back down from anything or apologize for anything or exhibit any sign he would ever begin to give the tiniest bit of crap about the actual Redditors contributing value to his site. So I left. Practical ZFS is a discourse server, and we've got a couple of nifty plugins in there. We've got one for Stack Exchange-style bubble voting to answer questions. We've got categories for ZFS itself, for Sanoid and Syncoid, for Proxmox, and for TrueNAS, and I've got a couple of folks asking for further. Right, well, link in the show notes as usual. Let's do some news then. And the biggest story in our world over the last couple of weeks is Red Hat and Red Hat Enterprise Linux and them changing the way the source code is distributed for that. Now, I've had my say on Late Night Linux, so I suppose I'll just give the floor to you two. And so what do you think about all this? Presumably you're on Red Hat's side. You think they've got a business to run and they've made the uh, correct decision. No, Joe, uh, I think you knew this, but that's absolutely not my take. The great thing about Red Hat, the company, is Red Hat, the company, spends a lot of money developing free and open source software that many communities get a chance to use, not only Red Hat users, which is a good thing. Unfortunately, Red Hat is also a very large commercial entity, and as such, it tends to kind of waffle back and forth in cycles as to whether it is remembering that it's a free and open source software entity or whether it's remembering that it is a large commercial entity that wants to extract all the value out of people it possibly can. Right now, we're on the unfortunate side of that cycle. On the upside of that cycle, Red Hat did wonderful things like, for example, acquire the CentOS distribution, which was a Red Hat clone, and not acquire it to kill it, but acquire it to actually run it with the stated reasoning that if we bring it in-house, we can give it more resources and we can make sure that our own brand doesn't get tarnished by impressions that people have of, you know, a knockoff clone. And they did that for several years and it was wonderful. And then, of course, you know, they killed it and it was just CentOS Stream, which is a rolling distro and no longer really appropriate for the things that most of the people using CentOS Linux wanted to use it for. I can hear the Red Hat people saying, it's not a rolling distro. That was a mistake to say that. It's just upstream of RHEL. It's not rolling. Well, they can say whatever they would like, but unlike actual CentOS Linux, it is no longer a stable distribution based on the stable Red Hat distribution. Yeah. There is absolutely no guarantee anymore that just because you're using CentOS Stream, your server will behave the same exactly in a binary compatible fashion with the current Red Hat, which was the whole freaking point. But anyway, that was one conversation. It was unfortunate enough. But the current thing, they have stepped it up even further than that. They have now said that you may not get a copy of the actual Red Hat Enterprise Linux source code unless you are a contractual paying Red Hat Enterprise Linux customer. 
And they've made some very unsubtle noises about what happens to the support contracts of any customers who are found to be leaking the Red Hat Enterprise Linux source code outside the customer base. Yeah, we've definitely seen a lot of people have concerns that, you know, when CentOS went away, first of all, that it got yanked in the middle of the promised support cycle, left a lot of people with a bad taste in their mouth. And we'll get back to that in a second. And then they announced this replacement CentOS stream, and it sounds like it's going to be the same thing. But as Jim alluded to, it is basically, rather than being a stable distro of this is the same thing as what Red Hat is, it's this is the beta of what the next Red Hat's going to be. And we can change stuff all the time to eventually settle on what's going to become the next stable Red Hat. And so as far as, you know, I'm even buying other commercial software that guarantees to work on Red Hat 8, and I'm running CentOS 8, so I'm supported. And then suddenly if I'm running CentOS Stream, it's like, well, we've not qualified our software with it. Uh, You're on your own if something goes wrong. You know, if it breaks, you get to keep both pieces. And you actually have some software that is very specifically in this situation, right? Like some of the video stuff that you do. Yeah. My previous company licenses video streaming, like commercial video streaming software. And yeah, it's only supported on like these specific releases of Ubuntu and CentOS. For their use case, RHEL is basically, uh, yeah, CentOS is the same thing. And maybe that's part of what Red Hat's trying to deal with here is that most places assume you're using CentOS and if you're using RHEL, it's like, oh, that's just CentOS with a support contract. And so the supported version is more likely to list CentOS than Red Hat. And that probably is what led to some of this. But what was really interesting for me and for Clara's sake was looking at a couple of our customers who had been CentOS users and came to us to help them switch to FreeBSD when support got yanked from CentOS. And was like, that's a relatively bold move, okay. And then when this most recent stuff happened over the last couple of weeks, I'm like, both of those people look like prescient to their higher-ups now. It's like, yeah, we avoided that whole mess and possibly being stuck on, you know, if we had switched to Rock Your Alma, now there's questions about whether they're going to be sustainable. And, you know, we'll talk more in a few minutes about, like, the loopholes they're trying to find and use to be able to keep access to the source code and continue to build things. So, mostly... We've been talking about the old news, you know, what is CentOS Stream? How is it different from the defunct CentOS Linux? What problems can that present? The other thing here is that although I was very vocally not in favor or in admiration of that decision to kill off CentOS Linux in favor of Stream, that was clearly well within Red Hat's rights. I didn't think it was in any way shady. I thought it was an ill-considered move and it would cost them more in bad PR than it could possibly gain them in whatever the hell they were trying to gain from it. But again, it didn't make them bad guys. It made them, you know, a corporation that, in my opinion, had made a blunder. Well, it really seemed like it was IBM getting their fingers in there and not really understanding all the ethos that Red Hat had before and why they did it that way. And IBM's like, no, let's let's make this change. Right, but this move, by contrast, they look very much like the bad guys here. And I hate saying that. I have actually been actively defending Red Hat for decades now as a non-Red Hat user when people made very unhappy comments about the Microsoft of the Linux world and yada, yada, yada. I went out of my way to talk about all the good things that Red Hat did and, you know, how, look, you know, Okay, sure, I guess you can say they're the Microsoft of the Linux world, but the fact remains that, you know, they are an open source company that is producing open source software and 
pushing it outside their own distribution and, you know, getting a lot of community input on it. These are the good guys. But now they're trying to do an end run around the GPL in a way that will stand up in court while still invalidating the entire spirit of it. And that makes you the villain of the piece. For sure. Yeah, that was a point that I made on Late Night Linux that uh, this is very much within the letter of the GPL as far as my read of it. But that doesn't not make them the bad guys. You know, the spirit and stuff is not really uh, being upheld here. But they are, there's nothing to get away with. It's not even that they're going to get away with it. There's nothing to get away with. This seems to me to be perfectly legal. I think that's probably the case. The more interesting question is, how are their customers going to react to just a very naked attempt to subvert what the GPL is all about? And I don't think we can argue against that being exactly what this is. I don't think you can reasonably try to build any kind of a chain of logic that is based on Red Hat is trying to still be a good open source company. Yeah, good open source citizen, as it were. Exactly. Definitely not in this case. It's very much of, you know, well, the letter of this thing says that we only have to give the source code to people that we give the binaries to. And so we'll just not give the binaries to anybody who's not paying us. And that, you know, if we can hide the source code, we can kill off all these things like Rocky Linux and Alma Linux. And we'll talk in a minute about the ways Rocky and Alma are looking to get around that process. But if it's going to be a constant stream of whack-a-mole where Red Hat is going to keep trying to plug these loopholes, then it really does raise a lot more questions about the longevity of, of some of these projects. Okay, Alan, I, I think we need to back up and address an implication that was kind of hidden in there. Speaking as somebody who is much more of a copyleft advocate than you are, it is not a loophole to say we don't need to distribute the source code to anybody but our customers. That's not a loophole. That's completely fine. It's always been completely fine. It was in the GPL by design. It is not new. It's not a problem. Now, in the past, very few organizations or individuals have tried to do things that way because what happens when they do, as they have done, is somebody just starts mirroring it. Somebody who is your customer and gets a copy of that code then mirrors it and there's you know, that is also completely within the GPL license, and there's nothing to be done about that. What's new here is that Red Hat has found a way to penalize people who exercise their rights under the GPL. That's new, and that's the evil part. Yeah, well, in particular, one of the main, the core principles of the GPL was to protect that right for you to do whatever you wanted with that source code. And it just happens the way contract law works is that Red Hat is saying, you can do whatever you want with it. But if you give it away, we're not going to help you ever again. And yeah, it really does, like you say, violate the spirit of the GPL, which is to protect your right to take the source code and build on it and, and give it away, while at the same time still technically not taking away that right. It's just like, you know, you can do that. But if you do, we're going to hang you out to dry and cut off your access to future copies of the source code. And to the actual support that in theory was what you were paying them for in the first place. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. If you work in security or IT and your company has Okta, this message is for you. Have you noticed that for the past few years, the majority of data breaches and hacks you read about have something in common? It's employees. Hackers absolutely love exploiting vulnerable employee devices and credentials, but it doesn't have to be this way. Imagine a world where only secure devices can access your cloud apps. In this world, phished credentials are useless to hackers, and you can manage every OS, even Linux, from a single dashboard. Best of all, you can get employees to fix their own device security issues, 
without creating more work for IT. The good news is, you don't have to imagine this world. You can just start using Collide. Collide is a device trust solution for companies with Okta, and it ensures that if a device isn't trusted and secure, it can't log into your cloud apps. So support the show and visit collide.com slash 25A to watch a demo and see how it works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash 25A. So what about Armour and Rocky and the various games of whack-a-mole they're going to have to play? Are they going to be able to continue, do you think? They seem to be pretty confident. Yeah, so what Rocky says is, you know, we'll just spin up an Amazon instance of RHEL where, you know, we pay for the license for the one hour, Mm -hmm. download all the source code, and then destroy the instance. Yep. And it's like, Red Hat's not going to cut off Amazon, so that'll work, (laughs) at least for now or something. At some point, maybe that means RHEL changes the Amazon instance, so you have to log in with your RHEL credentials or something before you can access anything. Or who knows what other crazy ideas they'll come up with to try to deal with it. Which, frankly, would would be a win for the folks who are protesting this kind of thing, because if Red Hat starts making yet more barriers to becoming a REL customer, well, they're going to have fewer REL customers. And I think ultimately that's what this really comes down to. I I think in addition to being a straight-up villain move, I think Red Hat is just absolutely playing a mugs game. Yeah, okay, good on you. You found a loophole and you're trying to exploit that and, you know, do something villainous to pump up short-term returns. But there's no way out of that. You then piss off people who have the option of spending like a whopping 60 bucks to get access to your source code and then share it wherever they like. It is not expensive to get a developer license. And sure, they might cut you off with that developer license. Oh, no, now we'll have to spend another $60. And there are plenty of folks out there that are angry enough about this to be willing to buy another one of those licenses every month if they had to. We can get free licenses as a developer. It comes down to a a case of how much is your time worth versus your money worth. It's easier to just spend the 60 bucks. You have to jump through more hoops and, you know, potentially it's easier to deflect you if you don't want to spend any money to become a customer or they could cut that program off entirely, which again would be, I won't say cutting their nose off to spite their face, but they're certainly starting to whittle on it at that point. Even if they just kill (laughs) the free access, that's how you onboard new customers. So essentially, whether they entirely realize it or not, what Red Hat's really doing is they're moving on from the attract phase and into the extract phase of inshittification. We've seen the same thing with a million tech companies, not just limited to open source. One of my favorite examples, as always, is Oracle. Who do you know who deliberately seeks out Oracle to begin a new project? I know of no one. (laughs) I'm sure there's one or two out there that exist, but basically Oracle at this point exists to extract value out of the people that it trapped decades ago. Yeah, and I think especially to your point there, there's definitely a subset of people who would pay the $60 for the badge of honor of being banned by Red Hat for distributing the source code. I mean, I would. <laughs> yeah. We just need one of those every so often, and then we always have a dump for Rocky. There's at least two of us <laughs> in this three-person conversation right now, and I think I could convince Alan without too much effort. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> one that had a little more concerning was Almond Linux's, I think it's just their wording, I don't think they actually intended it this way, but they say, the process will be more labor-intensive and will require gathering data and patches from several different sources and comparing them and testing them. It's like losing access to the affirmative upstream does seem like it could impose some like supply chain risk in that if 
wherever source Alma Linux is pulling stuff from has got adulterated versions of the Red Hat code that has got a bug introduced or just not patched or whatever, that it could lead to, to more problems. Even just if they don't have timely access to the Red Hat stuff, how long do they have to wait for an open SSL fix or some other CVE fix? And is it going to induce more latency there? Well, I think that refers to CentOS Stream because in theory, and this is what all the Red Hat people will tell you, everything that ends up in RHEL will go through CentOS Stream. And so if you are carefully looking at the stream source code, you can extract from that what will become RHEL. And so you can almost get ahead of it, is their argument. Right, but CentOS Stream is generally what's going to become the next version. If it's a security fix backported to an older version of an application that doesn't exist in Stream because it's now a newer version, you might end up on the long-term support version being cut off from those important security updates. Yes, if your whole goal in life is I want to curate my own distribution based on Red Hat that is not actually Red Hat, then yeah, Stream is a perfectly reasonable source to begin from for that. But again, that is not what the vast majority of people who used CentOS Linux before or you know Alma and Rocky now actually want. And I would like to point out the irony, it has not been that long since Jim Whitehurst's Red Hat acquired CentOS to make sure that the knockoff was in good condition and would not tarnish the Red Hat brand through follow-on effects. Now, <laughs> since the IBM acquisition, not only have they killed off CentOS Linux and replaced it with Stream, now they're actually screwing <laughs> with the knockoffs, making it more difficult for them to keep up to date. And it's not like there is anybody out there using Alma or Rocky, who does not know that what they are trying to do is use Red Hat. So they have not only gone back on the original, well, let's make sure that our brand doesn't get tarnished from knockoffs. They're actively, arguably, tarnishing their own brand by making the knockoffs do more work to do what they're going to do because there's still a market for it. Yeah, like the entire point of the downstream distributions of Red Hat is to be bug for bug compatible with the headline version of Red Hat. And Stream is very much not that. It's the beta playground for the next version. It's essentially a Windows Insider build for Linux. And you have to ask yourself, how much sense would it make for you to build a business based on top of Insider previews? Not a good call. No. It's like maybe if you're a, a video game developer, you want to test your stuff against the next version but not your critical infrastructure. Even then, video game developer or not, you're not going to have the servers in the office running on a, a freaking insider build of Windows Server. <laughs> I, I, I hope you're not. <laughs> I don't think it's quite fair to, to compare it to that. I know that Red Hat people would say that, no, it's, it's very much not that level of bleeding edge. It is ahead of RHEL, but it's not that far ahead of RHEL. Right, but any difference makes it not the same as RHEL. Yes. Where CentOS was always exactly the same as RHEL. So what about the IBM versus Red Hat debate? Who do we think this has come from? Because if you look at the public statements and social media profiles of various Red Hat employees, they say this is pure Red Hat. This is Red Hat as its own independent entity making these decisions, and it's nothing to do with IBM. Well, Joe, Red Hat already laid off all of the people that I would normally ask about what it's like to be inside Red Hat, so I can't answer that question. <laughs> well, I think that's probably a big part of it. Even if it wasn't a directive from IBM, it was, oh, you know, we have to get our numbers up, otherwise there's going to be another round of layoffs. And so how can we make sure that more people that are kind of on the margins 
decide we need real RHEL and we have to pay for it, not just using Rocky Linux because us pulling the rug on CentOS didn't convince them. Yeah, the community initiatives and the people who staffed those community initiatives have already been closed and canned and discarded. So the question really should probably be at this point, does it even matter talking about is this IBM or is this Red Hat? Because it's all that's left at Red Hat either way. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Factor. Now that we're at the height of summer, you might be looking for wholesome, convenient meals to support sunny, active days. Factor can help you fuel up fast with flavorful and nutritious ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. You'll save time, eat well, and stay on track reaching your goals. With Factor, skip the trip to the grocery store and skip the chopping, prepping, and cleaning up too. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are ready in just two minutes, so all you have to do is heat them up and enjoy. Too busy running around during the day to think about lunch? Keep your energy up with lunch to go. Effortless, wholesome meals like grain bowls and salad toppers that are ready to eat when you're on the go. No microwave required. Jim tried Factor and said the meals were quick and easy to prepare and liked that there was plenty of variety. So support the show and go to factormeals.com slash 25A50 and use code 25A50 to get 50% off. That's code 25A50 at factormeals.com slash 25A50 to get 50% off. Brave aims to curb practice of websites that port scan visitors. Now, I have very little time for Brave because they're into crypto bullshit. But this story did flag up quite an important aspect of browser security. So I will give them that. I will concede them the point on that. Specifically, the issue here that Brave is trying to address directly is one of the many shady tactics that someone who can deploy JavaScript on your computer via your browser can do is they can port scan your localhost subnet. Now, they can't port scan your local area network, but everything 127.0.0.1 to 127.255.255.255, they can play with it pretty much all they like. There are some limitations to how deeply they can interact with the various ports, but they can absolutely check and see what's open, what's closed, what's filtered. The most obvious use for this is fingerprinting, you know, the attempt to get a unique or close to unique identification of your particular computer so that you can be identified and targeted with ads or whatever else somebody who's trying to figure out exactly who you are might want to do. There are some other obviously pretty deeply unnerving security implications to your browser just being able to monkey with anything on the localhost subnet. There are a lot of programs that use that localhost subnet for all kinds of things that you absolutely don't want your browser touching. For example, a lot of people use a feature called port forwarding in SSH, where you establish an SSH connection that opens up a port on your localhost subnet that then is actually used to just proxy across the tunnel and reach a port on the remote machine. Well, obviously, you don't want your web browser touching that. That's horrible. The thing that I will say beyond that, though, is this was not an unknown issue. Brave tackling it directly has certainly brought more attention to it, which I'm not unhappy at all about. But there were already browser plugins that dealt with port scanning directly. And the one that I think the most of our listeners are going to be the most familiar with and the most likely to have deployed on their own machines, uBlock Origin, while it doesn't directly target that particular action, 
The easy list filters that it use absolutely include any sites that are known to do port scanning as part of the blocking. Yeah, there are some somewhat legitimate uses for this. Like looking at the example they have in the, in the article here of eBay, it's specifically looking at port 3389, which is Windows Remote Desktop, 5900 and 5901, which is VNC, and so on. And I think they in particular are using this to try to detect machines that are being remotely controlled, specifically compromised, as part of their fraud prevention. So if the machine coming to eBay trying to buy stuff has Microsoft RDP opened, there's a good chance it's been exploited and it's somebody else's computer being used without their knowledge to try to buy stuff on eBay and commit fraud. And they can add that in with other actions and the way people behave and the age of the account and all these other factors to decide when maybe we don't actually want to let this person try to buy this because it's probably a fraudulent transaction. Which would be fine if they were actually asking for permission. If the website popped up a dialogue, you know, this website would like to check ports blah, blah, and blah, then yeah, I mean, I got no issues with that at all. That's not what it does. The other way to address that would be to say, okay, the browser can't normally just do that with arbitrary JavaScript, but maybe the browser allows plugins that will do that. And maybe eBay says, okay, if you want to list an item, you have to install the eBay plugin. And here's what the eBay plugin does. All that would be fine, but that's not the way it works. And I don't think it's reasonable to say, well, everybody that ever puts up a website anywhere on the internet should get to port scan your local host subnet in order for eBay to see if maybe there's VNC listening on your machine. Well, I think the right answer is the first one you said there is that the browser should be like, hey, just like when it's trying to ask what's your GPS location and so on. It's like this website would like to do this. Do you want to allow it? And you can say only until I close this window or never, ever, ever. Right. Or remember this decision. Exactly. What's really interesting with some of this is this is using WebSockets to make that connection. And in general, WebSockets specifically is set up so JavaScript more in general will do these things with the cores request, where it'll ask the other website, do you want to allow this person to connect? Specifically so that JavaScript on one website couldn't be used to make all the people visiting that website DDoS some other website. But it seems we'd never apply the same protections to the machine the browser is running on. And it seems like maybe your browser should have some options where you could set some cores settings so that whatever website can't just willy-nilly connect to whatever port it wants on your computer. Because we've seen other things, like I remember in the past, if you ran the Zoom client on a Mac, it kept a web server running on localhost on a specific port, and that's how it managed updates or whatever. And even when the window was closed, if the app was running in the background, that was still there, and it was a whole exploit vector. Well, normally, nobody would be able to do that from off your machine. But if their browser can be tricked into making a WebSockets connection to that localhost port, suddenly that thing that's only supposed to be reachable from your computer is reachable from random websites now. So I think the biggest thing here is that why does Firefox not already be popping up dialogues about this? Well, there are plugins that can do it. And this reminds me of HTTPS Everywhere, which you used to have to have a plugin for. And then eventually Mozilla made that plugin basically obsolete by including it within Firefox. And maybe Brave shining a light on this will force Mozilla and maybe even Google to just bake it into the browser. Yeah, and like I can see worries about disruptions, you know, certain banks using security software that expects to be able to do this. But, you know, they'll get over it. <laughs> The banks are making you install that god-awful trustier endpoint management nonsense that breaks the entire internet. They're not really relying on in-browser features, in my experience. 
Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Another perk of being a patron is you get to skip the queue, which is what Kevin has done. He writes, OpenWRT or OpenSense for a home network? I've got one of those fanless x86 boxes that Jim always recommends, currently running OpenSense, but I don't love the OpenSense interface and get confused by the options around adding interfaces and configuring the firewall. I've played with OpenWRT a little, and I think I like the interface more, but wasn't sure if there were other pitfalls I should be aware of. So I very much understand Kevin's concern here with the interface on OpenSense as much as I keep saying that OpenSense is a lot more intuitive and discoverable and easy to live with than PFSense. That doesn't mean that it's anywhere near as simple as just, you know, using a standard consumer router. I will say that personally, I have also used OpenWord and I find OpenSense Again, we're talking interface here. I, I find it much, much nicer than Lucy, the uh, the graphic interface for, for OpenWord. But that's my personal preference. Kevin, if you like the interface better for Lucy and you feel like you can figure that out better, then yeah, absolutely, you should use it. OpenWord is very widely used and deployed in both small and extremely large environments. So I don't have you know any kind of real concerns there. The one thing that I will say is just you know, make absolutely certain that you're not exposing Lucy on the WAN interface. But aside from that, if that's your preference, have at it. Uh, there's x86 builds, there's builds for all kinds of different, you know, individual consumer ARM devices and uh, whatever you want to run it on. If you like the interface and you can work with the interface, it's a solid option, high performance, well-supported, go for it. Yeah, I basically agree with Jim that, you know, whatever you like better is fine. Open WRT was originally designed as a replacement firmware for the small consumer routers. And so it was designed to fit in a very small amount of disk space because, you know, those usually had a fixed amount of flash that you could EEPROM and that was it. There was no hard drive or anything. Whereas OpenSense was turn any old computer into a router. That means OpenSense generally is much more extensible and can do a lot more complicated things. But if you're not doing those things, all that complication leads to this interface that has all these options I don't understand and just means it takes me longer to set it up to do just the basic thing I'm trying to do. So while OpenSense has a lot more features and can do a lot more, if you're not doing those things, it makes no difference to you. So, you know, at some point it's like, well, I already have OpenSense. Is there enough reason to switch? That's up to you. But I think for your home router, either will serve you very well. For example, OpenSense has support for inline filtering of the internet. So software like ZenArmor, where it can actually be watching the packets as they go through and try to detect threats like viruses or port scans and so on, and actually be able to block those at the router level. So doing intrusion detection and, and all this other stuff. A lot more of that is aimed at things like a small office or something where you need to have more cybersecurity defense stuff. But, you know, at your home, if you have a bunch of other users, not just you using the network, and those people maybe need more protection and virus scanning of everything they're doing, then those additional capabilities that something like OpenSense has can add a lot of value. But if you're not going to use them, then you know maybe the extra complicated interface is not the right fix. But in general, OpenSense has really nice documentation. Some of it's in the interface and some of it's you know, on their website or whatever, but 
they've done a good job of continuing to expand that and also of translating it into lots of different languages, which has also been a big draw for people in a lot of places. One of the things that's probably worth mentioning about OpenWord, if you're not already intimately familiar with it, is that unlike OpenSense, the graphical interface on OpenWord, it's a bolt-on. OpenWord was originally designed as a primarily command line interface, and the Lucy graphical interface was added on later, and it's actually strictly optional. It can be removed. You don't have to have it. Now, that's a plus if you want to administer your router from the command line, although personally, if I'm going to do that, I'd rather work with vanilla Linux. But it can be a minus if you are very dependent on the GUI and you think it's almost there, but not quite yet, because it's not going to be the kind of development priority it is in an interface-first distribution like OpenSense. Right, well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions or feedback. You can find me at joerest.com slash mastodon. You can find me at jrs-s.net slash social. And I'll have to set something up soon, but for now, it's still Twitter at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.